there are so many forms of grief. Grief is not just the loss of a loved one. Grief can be the loss, like you shared, the loss of the community, the loss of your ability to do something that you really enjoy. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general education purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. And if discussion of grief or loss of loved ones, miscarriages, or other is a trigger, you may want to save this podcast for later when you're open to hearing about potential ways to find hope through that healing, because we are going to be talking with Laura Fletcher today of Sella Fertility. And um, you recently wrote a book, Laura, on the grace in grief, healing, and hope after miscarriage. And I thought just grief in general is a really big topic that is not discussed enough. And I don't think people are prepared when it comes, unlike other big life changes or things that come into our life. So I'm excited to kind of explore that topic with Laura and how we can set ourselves up for success, both to properly grieve and to help us move through that. Laura, you're no stranger to grief, unfortunately, but has kind of turned that into your own positive journey in helping others, which I think is great. So Laura is a certified doula through Donna International, which is the leader in evidence-based doula training certification and continuing education. I myself used a doula for my second son. Um, long story there we don't need to get into, but I'm a big fan. I'm also a huge fan of postpartum doulas. I was in the Leche League for a really long time, and I know how incredibly powerful they can be, both for whether someone wants to breastfeed or not, but also just postpartum support and having someone who has been through things alongside you. Um, And Laura, that's what you do. You draw from your own personal experience and journey and shared that experience in your new book, The Grace and Grief, and already Amazon bestseller and your journey through four earth-shattering miscarriages after the birth of your first daughter, Jolene, in 2012. I'm so sorry for your losses, and I'm grateful that you're allowing that vulnerability and that experience to be something that you share with others because that process of the grief and the knowing and the connection in the community is so powerful. So after years of research, consultations, inaccurate diagnoses, you did take control of your own health, your own fertility journey, and can share with listeners some of what that looks like now. But just as a reminder, listeners, we have previously discussed infertility specifically on show eight with Haley Staley, who talked about both her IVF journey, how anxiety played a role in her complications, and then her natural conception with her 
son later. And then we also went into more detail with Dr. Laura Shaheen in episode 31, who is a fantastic fertility doctor. I don't know, Laura, if you're familiar with Dr. Shaheen, but I'm a huge, I'm like a nerd. I'm a fangirl. So as I said, Laura's story started with infertility, but what we're going to talk about today is grief in general. So I know for me personally, I was completely unprepared for the loss of several important people in my life. And in a lot of ways, the grief that comes with so much more as death has a broader meaning, right? Like it's not even like, The death of someone is the only grief that you can have. And I think the more that we experience that, the more we understand it. And hopefully we can share some of our lessons learned with listeners in preparation for things that they might need to grieve. And I know during those times, I was in no shape for self-care or mental health hygiene or all the other things that we really need to do to support our grief. So Laura, your experience, both personal and working with clients, I think is one that we can all benefit learning from. Um, Can you share more about yourself, what I missed and what listeners might need to know? Yeah, thank you for that super thorough and beautiful introduction. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you know, you made so many great points. And I want to talk a little bit about my folk, but I really want to focus on some of the really great points that you made. So I had my first daughter in 2012, as you mentioned. It was a pretty standard pregnancy, and I didn't worry that I was going to have any challenges going forward. I thought, okay, you know, my daughter is now of an age where we're ready to grow our family. We started trying, got pregnant right away, was feeling really lucky, really blessed, feeling like, you know, everything goes right for me. And then I had four miscarriages back to back over the course of about eight. So, you know, I would get pregnant very easily. And then would make it somewhere between six and, you know, kind of 14 week mark. And I would have a miscarriage and whether that was a blighted ovum or a missed miscarriage, you know, there are different kind of categories of miscarriage. And I pretty much checked all the boxes. The experience was heart-wrenching. It, you know, it destroyed so many things about me, but it also provided so much opportunity for growth and learning and compassion. I didn't know how to grieve. I didn't know that wasn't, you know, you mentioned this, I believe that, you know, it wasn't really modeled for you. Same for me. You know, I didn't grow up in a, in an incredibly emotionally intelligent family. My mother is really emotionally intelligent, but my father was not. Um, So it was never modeled for me. I was always patted on the back and told to get up and dust myself off and just keep going. And that's what I tried to do during miscarriage because that's all I knew to do. So I tried to power through and created more damage as a result. So. Over the course of those four miscarriages, you know, with each one, learned something about myself, about the medical system, you name it, and I had to go through it. But as a result, I learned to self-advocate. I learned how to reach out for support, how to create those communities, what questions to ask, who to ask those questions to. You know, there, there are so many different things that go into it. And as a result, I had my sixth pregnancy and second live birth in 2020. Her name is Isla. And I just thought it was such like a small world kidsmit kind of thing because Haley Staley, who we had on for our infertility show earlier, her first IVF daughter's name is Isla, spelled the same way. So, and it's a special, unique name. It's not like, you know, Sarah, right? And I was like, how 
what a small world that you guys both have that connection. Well, thank you for sharing your story and being open to allowing us all to learn from it today. I think before we get started, I wanted to share a quote that really sums up how I feel about grief. And truth be told, I originally heard this in a Marvel Cinematic Universe either show or film. I couldn't really figure it out. And in Googling where that quote came from, I found the full quote. And I think it really represents how, for me, I lost my grandmother, who was like a mother figure for me. I was very close with her because my parents were divorced when I was one. And so she did a lot of mothering for me from a very young age. And then shortly thereafter, we lost my brother-in-law, who was like a brother to me and like a father figure for my children because he lived with us for 15 years and helped us raise them. And also around the same time, I had an injury, a severe back injury that ended my strongman training. And truth be told, like the grief of losing that community, of losing strongman, coupled with the loss of these loved ones really swallowed me for a really long time. Like I was in a place where the physical pain of my back was manifesting itself in like emotional pain sort of ways. And I was having panic attacks. I was lethargic. I was really kind of like non-functional depression. If I think back to that time period, I have a really difficult time remembering much of anything. It feels very much like a black hole for me. And what I recall is being angry. What I recall is being in pain. And that felt more emotional than even the physical pain, although I know I was in physical pain as well. And so now being able to kind of look back years later, having, you know, gone through a healing process with grief, both for myself, my husband who lost his best friend, with my kids who lost father figure, like, and also as a foster mom who's helped children grieve the loss of the stability of their home and their loved ones that come here, right? Like there's all kinds of grief that come up for me. I find that this quote really encapsulates a feeling that feels much safer and um, more pleasant for me than the idea of just thinking of grief as pure loss. And the quote is, grief is really just love. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. Laura, have you heard that quote before? I have. And as I'm sitting here listening to you share all of those examples of grief and also that quote I have, you know, it resonates so deeply and have that sensation of the corners of your eyes starting to well up. It's happening right now for me. I have heard that quote and I think that you're so right. It, everything about that is true. It is, there's nowhere for it to go, that love. And it pours out of us, whether that manifests physically, emotionally, whether that turns into depression or rage or, you know, I've experienced all of it as well. And I think it's so, so important to acknowledge and honor that there are so many forms of grief. Grief is not just the loss of a loved one. Grief can be the loss, like you shared, the loss of a community, the loss of your ability to 
do something that you really enjoy, you know, that becomes part of who we are, right? That community, that that ability, we kind of identify with that. And then to lose it, we have to go through a grieving process. And, you know, you mentioned the loss of stability within a family. That in itself, you know, there's no ranking system for grief, right? And all of it is valid and all of it brings up exactly what that quote talks about, that that sensation of like, being overwhelmed by it and having nowhere for it to go because we are so filled with that love. And you're so right. That's exactly what grief is. It's love with nowhere to go. I think also one of the things that was unique for me to feel that was really hard to engage with the outside world was this feeling that like nothing mattered relative to the experience that I was having. That like normal everyday things like grocery shopping or the bickering of neighbors over you know whatever HOA thing was supposed to have been done that wasn't or you know like just the regular occurrences of life had me more than just kind of rolling my eyes or laughing but really just kind of disengaging and being that doesn't matter how can life go on how can every day keep going on when I'm feeling how I'm feeling and I'm not going to engage with that, which I think takes you even further into your own grief, right? Like when you're not able to engage with the other communities that you do still have. And I think also people in those communities sometimes don't know how to show up or don't know those kinds of things, which I thought, you know, we could talk about today. So what I love about your story in particular and the approach that you have of overcoming grief is using that as education and empowerment. Part of your story was you educated yourself, you became empowered, and you know you were able to control the narrative in a way that worked for you. That doesn't necessarily always end up as other people's stories. And at the same time, if we're empowered and we're educated, we know that we're doing the best that we can, and that's all we can do, and that we might have to grieve a circumstance or the loss of something that you know, we really wanted, but we couldn't have. But in all cases, all of that is grief. And I mean, in my case, you know, I've gone through a variety of things, like you said, but I feel like it's, um, it's more possible to pull ourselves out of that dark place when we think that there's something, some sort of hope, some sort of light And that can be empowerment and education. That can be a new community. That can be a variety of things. And I'm wondering if you can share more about your experience with that. Of course. Yeah. You know, you just shared that you felt so disconnected from all of the like mundane things that were happening around you. And I had this moment, you know, I had just gone through a miscarriage and I was at work and I still looked pregnant. Right. Because our bodies don't recognize immediately that we're not pregnant anymore. They, we still have like translucent skin and our veins are still visible and we're still kind of rounded and our ligaments are still stretched. And I had this moment where a man came into my workplace and he said to me, Oh, you know, he said something along the lines of, When are you expecting or when are you due? And I just about went off my rocker with absolute just. I was irate. I was so furious. And it was like, I had this sensation of like, how can everybody else just be so like, everything's normal and everything's fine. And I'm over here just 
you know, in absolute devastation. So that resonated really deeply with me. All of, you know, baby shower invites, getting baby shower invites in the mail, going through eight years of miscarriages and infertility. It's like everyone's just cruising along. (laughs) It was really hard to reconcile. But as far as having hope, I want to be really transparent. There were times during my journey that there, if somebody had said to me, have hope or look for the light, it would have upset me more. It took me years to get to a place where I could be in any way, look back and reflect and have any sense of understanding or clarity or I guess, I don't even know if positivity is the right word, but a sense of going forward rather than being stuck in this grief. What really did help me, and you touched on it, is the idea of education. Because I got to a point where I recognized that I was the least educated person about my own body. I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't understand, you know, when my doctors were saying things like, you know, oh, this particular lab value or blood test, they're referencing parts of me that I had no understanding of, you know, my, for example, my, my AMH level, you know, they kept telling me, oh, well, your AMH is excellent. So your fertility must be really great. I didn't know what any of that meant. So it really helped me to dive in and educate myself so that I could converse on the same playing field. When I was having these conversations with doctors, I knew what they were talking about and I could also counter with questions and I could gain understanding about the next steps, my next direction. And I became empowered about what my options were. You know, I felt in the beginning like all of my decisions were dictated by my doctors and I was almost just clinging on along for the ride. You know, I wasn't actually making any decisions. I was just kind of barely keeping my head above water and being kind of directed. So pulling that back and putting that power back in my court was tremendously healing for me and hope that your listeners can find a sense, you know, that can resonate for them and they can find a sense of regaining their power through education and therefore empowerment. Did you find also any sort of communities that were helpful in this or like people who had been through similar situations that was helpful for you? In the beginning, I didn't. And it was really discouraging, really, truly discouraging. As I, you know, kind of progressed and had more miscarriages and I became more aggressive about seeking those communities out, I was able to find particular people that could resonate with what I was experiencing. I knew people that had experienced new fertility and I knew people that had experienced a singular miscarriage. I didn't know anybody who had experienced multiple miscarriages. And kept being told, you know, everything's fine. You're perfect. You're healthy. Just keep trying. None of that resonated with anybody within my circle or even my kind of extended circle, if you will. So I had to seek that out in strangers. And I did find a community that was beautiful and helpful and supportive. And I have since gone on to create those communities, which to me has been imperative. Yeah, I agree. I think as we were talking, just thinking about you know, how we supported each other through some of the losses, you know, we became kind of our own community, but we were operating from a place of inexperience, right? Like, we didn't necessarily do the best things for each other, you know, coming from a place of not knowing or being in our own grief and not being able to kind of like fully validate somebody else's feelings or, you know, those kinds of things. 
But I'm thinking of how very different my experience was in supporting the grief of foster kiddos. And also to be clear, like that there's a lot of grief when you are a caretaker of someone who is experiencing the kind of trauma that most foster children, the ones that came into our lives have experienced. And so, you know, in order to be my best self and the support system for that person, I learned like I needed an outlet for my grief and my pain. I needed a support group. And that was incredibly powerful in terms of then being able to have more patience and support for somebody else's grief and their feelings and validation and all those things in that moment. And so when I think to I know it's so corny, but also the show Dead to Me, I think a lot of listeners will be familiar with on Netflix. Like they, those women met each other in a support group for people who are grieving. And I know that those exist. And so I, I do want to encourage people to find a community because I think if we only lean on those in our lives, like it can create problems. And I know I wasn't the best partner. So maybe we could talk about that next, which is just like, I think that, you know, it's important that partners show up for one another, but not necessarily able to do our best again, if we're unprepared. Right. So I just spoke to, and I will continue to admit that I know I was not the best support system for my partner when he lost his brother and his best friend, because I also lost a brother and a friend. And Neither one of us had ever really seen healthy grief be modeled specifically, not because, you know, our parents were emotionally unavailable. I think there's, you know, some of that in that generation, just in general, right? Like our parental generation is one of, you know, hiding emotions or dealing with them behind closed doors, but more so no one in either side of our family had ever experienced a kind of loss the way that was that, you know, all of our grandparents had died at, at a kind of expected ages and that kind of thing. And so there was not like anyone who had the experience in our family to have ever been through something like that to have modeled it. And now having been to support groups, I've learned a lot. And I want to make sure that we're modeling things like talking about the loved ones that have passed and um, ensuring that the memories that we want to keep alive are through the stories that we tell or the foods that we make that remind us of those people and being okay to name that and to bring those emotions up both in a sometimes a giggly sort of way. I mean, we often talk about embarrassing stories of the kids' uncles, because it makes them laugh and they can remember him in a funny, positive way. Um, but also, you know, to make sure that the memory is not forgotten. And I think what I've heard a lot of people feel is that, like, that the memory of that person is so painful, or, you know, the Maybe someone else doesn't know what to say about a loss. And so they just don't say anything at all or they don't bring it up. And I think that can be really hard. And I know I've heard this from other mothers who have lost babies that they 
want that child to be remembered more than anything else. They want the the purpose that it served to help somebody else to know that life was cherished in some sort of way. And I think when we look at how grief has been modeled for so many years, that's not the case, right? Like people didn't talk about miscarriage. People didn't talk about loved one that had passed or, you know, what happened. That's all very like taboo from a social perspective. I use air quotes for those listening. But I think um, when I think about all those things, it makes me want to be more prepared and a better parent, a better partner, a better person to help support someone else as they might be grieving. Because we can see from extensive like science and studies that ignoring your feelings is never a good thing, right? Like even Disney did a whole movie about that. So I think if we can talk a little bit about maybe what we can do as partners to or friends or community members of someone who might be grieving. I think that would be helpful. Yeah. So first of all, I love that show Dead to Me. I think it's so great. I find it so entertaining. But I want to talk specifically about the two main characters, friendship. They make a lot of mistakes with each other, right? They try their best to show up for each other, to be such a great support system for each other, and they still make mistakes. The same goes for everybody I know. My, I have made mistakes. My partner has made mistakes. My best friends have made mistakes when they have tried to soothe me about miscarriage. There is no doubt in my mind that they are coming with the best of intention. But like you said, they're unprepared to deal with this level of trauma. You know, this level of trauma truly requires a professional setting. It's not something that the average person on the street is equipped to to speak to. That doesn't mean that we can't show up and do our best. It doesn't mean that we should be afraid to talk about it. I completely agree with you. Every single woman that I work with, that I coach, that has experienced miscarriage, that is the one thing that all of them have in common, that they want people to acknowledge and remember their children. They want people to acknowledge and remember that they are mothers, regardless if they have a living child on earth today. You know, an example of that, I have been pregnant six times. But often, even the closest people in my life refer to me as the mother of two. And every time it happens, it's like a wince. You know, it's become less intrusive to me. It's become less painful. But it still stings. I think of myself as a mother of six. And I've expressed this, you know, and some people don't feel the same way. And that's absolutely fine. But I do think that we have to ask those questions, you know. I think that converse about it and we do our best and we acknowledge when we make mistakes and we apologize. And I think what we do is we show up with a from a place of listening. And if that person that is grieving can help walk us through some of their boundaries that's really incredibly helpful for us as a support system. This podcast is brought to you by Nom Nom Dog Food, who I know a lot of pet owners, including myself, use to elongate the life of our dear beloved pets by using the latest science and insights to make nourishing food for dogs. I wish they could tell you themselves, but both Penny and Gus are obsessed with Nom Nom dog food. 
The low inflammatory food helps their brachiocephalic breathing. One day I'll be able to say that. And keeps their coats shiny and healthy without itching skin or paws, a sign that your dog could have allergies. And for so long, getting Penny to eat was a negotiation. After months of her refusing food, she will now run in from another room for mealtime. It's so amazing. And I love knowing that not only is it good for her, but it's costing us less money too. Our previously freeze-dried food was $7.50 a meal, something I didn't figure out until I did the math in evaluating Nom Nom because theirs is shipped fresh to your door for free for only $2.40 a meal all cooked in a company-owned kitchens in the United States. Nom Nom has crafted an easy tool with board-certified veterinary nutritionists to ensure the exact right food and portions for your pooch, made with real whole food you can see and recognize without any additives or fillers that contribute to irritation, bloating, or low energy. And they have the world's largest pet microbiome database to help create better recipes for every breed, size, and digestive sensitivity. Why not try it? Nom Nom comes with a money back guarantee. If your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your order. Go right now for 50% off your no risk two week trial at trynom.com slash whole view spelled try slash whole view for 50% off trynom.com slash whole view. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed, where I recommend both posting your resume and job opportunities if you're in search of quality candidates. I cannot imagine running my small business without my small but mighty team, because colleagues more than family are who you're spending the most of your time with. The right person makes all the difference. But the best candidates aren't sitting around waiting. You want to use Indeed's tools to capture them quickly. 73% of U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comscore. Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed's employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, making Indeed the number one source of hires in the U.S., according to Talent Nest. Employers now have so many time-saving tools, more than when I got my career break back in ye olden days of the 1900s with Indeed. And now you can message, schedule, and interview top talent seamlessly all in one place to save you time. Interview virtually with no downloads, plugins, or purchases. And that means that you can find top talent fast with Indeed's virtual suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Most employers say it saved them days of hiring time, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed knows that finding people with the right skills makes all the difference when you're hiring. That's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have requirements. Visit indeed.com slash wholeview to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash wholeview. Indeed.com slash wholeview. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. To quote another great show, Ted Lasso says, be curious, not judgmental.
right? Like if you come at something from the perspective of asking questions and being curious and saying like, I want, I want to be respectful. This is really important for me. Like you're important to me. I recognize this experience is important. Like help me understand what you need in these moments. No one is ever going to complain about that, right? Like no one is ever going to expect someone to be perfect or to know everything, but to show that you care and are being thoughtful is incredibly powerful. The other thing that came to my mind when you were talking is you were saying, you know, some of the grief work needs to be done by professionals. Absolutely. Wholeheartedly agree. And I think as community members, there are a lot of things that we can show up for, but I think sometimes we ask in a way that sets us up for failure. So oftentimes people will say, you know, what can I do to help? If there's something I can do, let me know. Those have become kind of common culture questions. And I think we get an answer very similar to like, hey, how are you doing? Fine. How are you? Even though you're not actually fine, someone is going to answer, no, it's fine. I'm fine. I don't need anything or no, because they can't process even in their grief in in those moments what it is that they need because that's coming up with a solution, right? Like that's, that's having to be a leader in your moment of grief and being able to say, these are the things that I need or want you to do. Instead, if we could just simplify our language to something like, I'm going to the store and I'm going to grab you gluten-free Oreos because I know those are your favorite. Is there something else I can get you? Are you out, are you out of milk? Do you need eggs? What can I do? Then the person is like, yes, please. And orange juice, right? Instead of, yeah, you can go to the store and get me Oreos. Like maybe the person is like, I don't want to have to ask someone to get me a comfort food. But if we proactively tell someone, I'm doing this for you, do you want to add on to that? That feels so much more um, approachable. Yes, approachable. That's a great word. Or just come over and sit with them. I will say some of my absolute best memories are with a close friend who we would just like get coffee and go to each other's houses. We lived 45 minutes away and it was like a special thing to just show up on the person's doorstep with their coffee and your coffee and just sit and chat it because I feel like so much is put on the internet and on social media and even on the phone. And sometimes you just, you need that personal connection of, you know, pheromones and heartbeats and all the things that remind us that we're a community, that we're together, that you're supported, that you're loved, that, you know, people care about you, that they're going to help you. And it's okay, whatever you're feeling in those moments to share with them, to vent to them, whatever it is. And I think just being able to sit with someone is very important. And if you're in their physical presence, you can also be aware that maybe their dishes need to be done. Don't ask them if you want, if they want you to do your dishes, because people are going to then feel shame about the fact that their dishes aren't done and you came over instead, just start doing the dishes and talk to them or, or whatever it is. I know, regardless of grief, if anybody comes over and does that for me, I'm like, thank you so much. You know, we all love help like that. I'm wondering yeah. if you have other ideas for some of those kind of actionable steps when we see that someone is in grief or in pain. I like to always make sure that listeners have like a 
an actionable thing that they can take away and implement to be of service to others and to feel empowered. I know you talked about kind of educating yourself earlier, but if you have other ideas for things that people could just like show up and do, I know we'd all love that. So first of all, I want to thank you for bringing this up. I think I adored you anyway, but I adore you for specifically touching on this because people really don't know how to show up and people don't know how to ask for help. Oftentimes, I've actually written several articles about this specifically. I think you're totally right. When somebody is in the midst of a dark hole and they're grieving, putting the responsibility of like asking them what they need often requires more bandwidth than what they have in the moment. And it doesn't feel comfortable to say to somebody, you know, I really need somebody to come over and do my dishes and my laundry. Like you said, if anybody shows up and does my dishes and laundry, I love them forever. So I think that, like you mentioned, the Ted Lasso quote about being curious, it's a great place to start. So, but also like giving options, right? The Oreo example is great. Hey, I'm going to stop by the store and I'm going to grab a few things for you. Is there anything else I can grab while I'm at the store? I'm going to drop them off around one o'clock. No pressure. But if you would like me to come in, I'm happy to sit with you and hear you listen to you, do whatever you need. But if you're not for a visit, that's totally fine. I'll drop the things at the front door and then we can reconnect in a couple of days. That's a really great way to show up for somebody. And it, it doesn't require bandwidth from them and it also gives them options. So that's a great way. Other things are thinking of what they have going on in their lives beyond the grief, right? So some people may have children that need to be entertained or they need to be taken to and from school they have animals that need to be taken care of. They have jobs. You know, there's a lot that still continues in life despite our level of grief. So thinking through the ways- The mundane stuff that just oh, does yeah. not feel important. Yeah. Right. It doesn't feel important, but a lot of it actually still is important and we still have to like check things off the list, right? So thinking through, you know, if you or have a close relationship with somebody- Usually, you know a lot of the stuff that they've got going on in their orbit, and you can kind of try to take some of that weight off of them. You know, other options are, I always say sending food. So, you know, you mentioned you had a friend that's like 45 minutes away. If you can't get over to their house, Uber Eats, DoorDash, things like that provide services where you can send them nourishing food and it arrives at their door and all they have to do is open the door and grab it. Because I can tell you right now, when I'm grieving, I'm not cooking. I am hungry, sure, but I'm not, I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength to like get in the kitchen and make it happen. So dropping off food, sending food, those are great ways to show up. You know, if you have the financial ability to hire them a house cleaner for a day, really great. You know, a lot of things get put on the back burner when you're grieving, whether that is like we said, laundry, dishes, things like that. You know, if you live in New York and your friend lives in Florida and there's a grief situation, you can still show up for them. I actually, when I was going through what I consider my worst miscarriage, my friend, my best friend at the time lived in Hawaii and I live in Florida. She flew home. It's a huge ask. I would have never asked her to do that. She did it without me asking. And then every day that she was here, she was available to me, but with no pressure. There was no pressure for me to host her in any way. She was just there for whatever I needed. And that was really beautiful. And, I, you know, I'll never forget that really felt supportive to me. Other options are, 
you know, sharing information about support groups. So if they don't have the bandwidth to, to research it, you can share that. And you don't necessarily have to share it with them directly. You can share that with their partner, maybe their mom, somebody that can, you know, provide that information at a time that feels appropriate. Um, those are great ways to kind of wade through that. There are, you know, obviously a handful of things that we don't want to do. We don't want to say, we don't want to minimize the loss. We don't want to minimize the grief. We don't want to put them on our timeline. We want to give them all the time in the world to process what it is that they're growing, going through. I would love if you could give a couple of examples of those minimizations, because I don't think that people realize that some of the commonly used phrases around grief are can feel invalidating or feel minimizing in those moments because we think that we're saying the thing that people say. Mm. It's only through having had those lived experiences myself. So I'll give an example of one. For example, when we first meet people or when they hear about something that they are impressed by around fostering. And I use that word very carefully because this response seems to be triggered by like being impressed. They often say, wow, that kid is so lucky to be with you. Ooh, and yeah. they, they mean so well to what they mean to say is, I, I love that you two are connected. I love that you found each other. I think you can benefit from this connection with one another. There's a lot of different things that really, I think, are intended in that yes. sentence. But what comes across instead to both myself, but especially to the child and the biological family, is that the child is lucky that they went through one of the tr most traumatic experiences of their life and got put in the home of a stranger who is not abusive or problematic. And one would like to think that would not be where we we start with the relationship that is deeply personal and, you know, filled with grief and love and all these feelings. So I have tried to, you know, educate and share with others, like some of the other things that you might say instead of anything to do with luck around this is, I love seeing that you found one another, or, you know, I'm grateful to be a part of this community that you're building, right? Like different kinds of phrases that allow for an expansion of feelings of beyond just foster parents and foster child, because there's so much more to it than that. And I know that there are examples that often happen with people who've had fertility loss or um, a, a variety of other things. So I was wondering if we could maybe like call specific attention to what some of those phrases are, because I do think they're very well intended. However, they can feel very harmful sometimes. My general rule of thumb is to not start any sentence with at least. So for example, at least you can get pregnant after just experiencing a miscarriage. At least it wasn't further along when you experience a six-week miscarriage as opposed to a 12-week miscarriage. Another one that has been kind of on my radar recently that I had to educate myself around is for somebody who is approaching or in the midst of IVF fertility treatments or IUI fertility treatments is kind of this reaction of, oh, that's so exciting. Congratulations. You must be so thrilled. First of all, IVF, any fertility treatments for that matter, don't guarantee a positive outcome, right? Second of all, 
I promise you that person does not want to be going through fertility treatments. I promise you that they wanted to get pregnant easily without having to spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars without having to go through, you know, hormone treatments and injections and a million doctor's appointments that is extremely disruptive to their lives. So, you know, yes, we can be hopeful and we can be excited for somebody, but phrasing it in a way that is compassionate. So rephrasing that to perhaps, wow, I imagine that requires a lot from you. I'm here to support you. And I'm really hopeful that this turns out the way you want it to. That's a really great way to acknowledge that what they're about to embark on or what they're in the midst of is challenging. And you're also here from them for them. And you're also hopeful. Oh, thank yeah. you for sharing. Of course. Um, so I think one of the things that I realized when I was preparing for the show is kind of like my takeaway action that I'm going to implement is we made our will about 10 years ago. And well, we updated our will about 10 years ago. And I'm realizing that it is not something that is up to date, that it's incredibly outdated. And if something were to happen to myself or my partner and myself, there would be a huge mess to manage for my family who would all be grieving. And so I know it was super helpful when my grandparents pre-planned their funerals and we joked with them about it. Like, you know, it was kind of ridiculous that they told us like, here's where the paperwork is and it's all paid for. And I was like, I don't want to hear about it. I really did. I was grateful that in our grief in those moments, we did not need to worry about what it was that we needed to do for grandparents that we could just grieve and know that everything had been taken care of. And I think that is another way that I can empower myself. That is another way that I can educate my family. And I can say like, okay, we've taken care of everything. The paperwork is really clear. It's in the safe. So we don't need to worry about it. Because I do find that now that my children are teenagers, they're starting to ask questions like, you know, oh, anyway, I don't need to get into like, life <laughs> yeah. questions, but... I imagine the barrage of things that you start to open your eyes to as a teenager, like, what is a 401k and do you have one? And like, I don't need my kids to be rifling through all my papers trying to figure all that out. So um, I myself have a takeaway of we need to update our well and I want to make sure that there's enough like clear guidance and planning in there that if something were to happen that our family no matter who they be that's left in their grief, doesn't have to also be worried about making those decisions. Because like you said earlier, if you can't even figure out what to tell someone to get you from the store, making a huge decision, like, you know, making arrangements after someone has passed is not something that they want to be facing. So, well, Laura, thank you so much for having this difficult conversation and, um, being being vulnerable. I'm wondering, if, is there anything else we didn't discuss that you want to share with listeners, knowing that we will have a quick after chat about what we really think over on Patreon. But I like to make sure that if there's anything we missed or things that you want to share with listeners, you have an opportunity. Thank you. I appreciate that. One thing I would like to kind of close with is that we all have the capacity to heal. There were moments 
when I was deeply entrenched in my grief that I didn't think it was ever possible for me to be a healthy, functional human being again. I felt like the dark cloud was going to be, you know, forever present. Here's what I will say. The grief does not ever go away. It's always there. Or I guess I should say, you know, 10 years on, it's still here for me. But I will say this, the burden of it lessens. And every single day, I find new ways to manage it. I become better at expressing it. I become better at compassion towards myself and also towards others. And I just want to really reiterate that we do have the capacity, given the right tools, given the right support, given the time, if we commit to ourselves, really loving ourselves, then we can overcome whatever this grief looks like in our lives. I love that. I totally agree. And I think some of the things that we talked about, therapy, community groups, all those kinds of things can really help that progress. Sure. Okay. So I want to remind listeners, they can find the community work that you do as well as more in your book at sellafertility.com. And we'll put a link in the show notes so that you don't have to guess how to spell that. Um, and you can find Laura on Laura Fletcher one on Instagram or Sella Fertility also has your personal Instagram in the bio. So people can link to you there. And we've put a link in the show notes also for your book, The Grace and Grief, Healing and Hope After Miscarriage. And listeners, if you have enjoyed the show today, I want to encourage you to check out what we really thought over on patreon.com slash the whole view, which is the best place to ask questions. And if you love the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support the show. But so is just leaving a review or hitting the follow or subscribe button in whatever app you're using so that others can find us as well. And we appreciate your willingness to tune in today to be open to growth through your own personal changes because no one is perfect. But in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.